Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be taking a look at three important questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week that will hopefully help us shape how we do what we do in international education. So before we get to those questions, I want to give a special shout out to those that are watching live here on Facebook. Uh, those that watch on repeat on Facebook or on our YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting, and obviously those that download us and make us a regular part of their podcasting listening habits uh, during the week. So it's always a pleasure to be uh, sharing our thoughts with you on what's happening in our world of international education, a very uh, fluid and ever-changing situation related to uh, student enrollments uh, this coming fall. We know what the big questions are there. Uh, in terms of uh, access to consulates and what happens if and when they do get to campus, are vaccinations going to be required? We've talked about those over the last couple of weeks, and I'm sure we'll do that again in the coming weeks. But I uh, wanted to spend today focusing on, on some key topics that I've been hearing uh, and having some decent conversations with other colleagues about uh, that impact what we do moving forward with international education and particularly student recruitment. Uh, as always, we bring the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup to you on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we do take our stories that we focus on and develop these questions around uh, from our newsletter that comes out Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, that is our all the SMIE, SMIE news fit to share. And in case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education, my two big passion areas for my work uh, over the last uh, 20 eight years now, coming up this July. So what, uh, what I'd like to focus on today, uh, I'm dropping the link to the most recent edition of the SMIE News letter uh, that you're welcome to subscribe to. You can also get to that uh, via the uh, SMIE website. That's smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. That'll get you to the subscription page, and you can just fill out a couple key details, and you'll get this free subscription in your email inbox on Monday mornings every week. So what we'll do today, as we do each week, is we'll start with a question that uh, kind of gets us thinking about uh, what, how we do what we do in international ed. And, and it, but this one is an appropriate one and does combine a lot of what I'm talking about in my, in my work with a lot of my uh, university clients is, is there a better way to release content to prospective students? And normally it's um, it, it, how we get our information out to students. Uh, it's, uh, we put a YouTube video up, we maybe uh, have something on Facebook, we maybe put something on our website. Uh, we, but is there, uh, is there a way that we produce content regularly for our prospective students that keeps them engaged? And it was a great article, and the question is, is there a better way to release content? That really stemmed from an article I saw in Inside Higher Ed last week uh, that had to do with um, uh, enrollment marketing, digitally remastered part two. And it's, uh, there was a part one piece that talked about redefining the role of in-person recruitment experiences alongside virtual ones, and that's something we can all relate to, obviously, in the last year. Uh, with our, our almost complete shift to online recruitment uh, as a way to reach our prospective students and how we're talking now about well, what's 2021 going to look like in the fall in terms of recruitment, spring 2022, will that be a return to more traditional uh, physical recruitment? 
So uh, there, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about when uh, on timelines on this, but one thing is for sure, how students consume content, uh, particularly from universities, uh, is, uh, is different. Uh, it's, they are used to now relying on these online tools to get their information, uh, to, uh, to look, seek out those videos, to seek out content that's relevant for them. And one thing I, I really see as, and the, I love the way that this is really portrayed uh, in this article. Uh, if for those that remember, uh, in terms of if you're fans of Disney movies at all, uh, if you have uh, young children who grew up on Disney, you might have grown up on Disney movies, uh, you might be familiar with the old Disney vault. Uh, this was the concept that Disney had that uh, every so often they would release these movies out and make them available for the public to purchase or to watch uh, through um, on, uh, like a pay-per-view kind of a, a thing or be able to buy uh, the, the DVDs or uh, uh, VHS cassettes back in the day of those particular movies that were so highly uh, sought after. And, but the, the challenge was they only did that every so often. So that one great movie you grew up on uh, might only be out uh, for a six-month period once every six, five, six years. So it really limited your, um, your uh, access to that information. And what uh, the author in, the, in this article uh, makes the comparison to, it's now not how students want and receive content is now more a Disney Plus version than a Disney Vault version, where there's a place that they can get information once every few years or once in a blue moon, uh, to now having Disney Plus, where in addition to your favorite Star Wars series and Disney, all the Disney movies, uh, you, all the Marvel movies are there as well. You get to you get fresh content on a regular basis now on these channels, uh, and that's something through like all, and other streaming services as well, Hulu, uh, Netflix, obviously Amazon Prime. Uh, all of these are geared towards regular production lines of content for audiences, for key audiences. And should international education be anything different? And my answer is no, because uh, I, one of my guiding principles in terms of how we reach and should reach students is to have a presence where they spend their time, live where your audiences live. I've, I talk about, I've been talking about this concept for for well over 13 years. And the, 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 at the core of it is, is being able to meet students where they are, meet your prospective students, parent audiences, counselors, whoever they might be, on platforms that they are familiar with, that they're using, that they can identify with, uh, that provides, the, what, for lack of a better phrase, 24-7 access to your best information. Now, what does that look like? Uh, for enrollment marketing, uh, for uh, particularly international uh, admissions folks. Ideally, it's a one-stop shop for all your content uh, on, on, in the web, on the web. And that right now is probably an amalgamation of uh, uh, blogs that students write, uh, videos you've done with, with current students, alumni, faculty that might be on YouTube. You might have content on the site for live chats, or you might do those on Facebook or other, other platforms. Uh, you may have uh, a, a regular series of articles that come out. You have your communication flow uh, by email that you also try and uh, ideally replicate some of those themes across your content platforms. And the goal, I think, with uh, this approach of 
meeting students where they are and having and, and providing them information in a time timely manner, but also on an ongoing manner that uh, it's fresh content. It's it's really appropriate for students at the, wherever they are in their journey. And the way I, I love this phrase that the, the author used is it's, and this is a quote from the author, Jay Murray, who's uh, Associate Vice President for Enrollment Services at Western Connecticut State University. Uh, his is, is kind of what sums it up for me is it's a it's time for admissions officers to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about our prospects media consumption habits as we measure the success of our efforts and really what this is what this is really getting to the heart of is uh, it's not us it's them and it's how we we're not, we're not producing this content for ourselves, we're producing it for our students. They are at the heart of why we do what we do, prospective students. And this is what, in admissions world, we need to be shifting our focus and not necessarily doing events at times that are good for us, but making sure we're, if we're doing a live event, doing it at the best times for the right audiences in the right parts of the world when it comes to international recruitment. So this is, um, this is uh, what I think is also the value of any live content you produce, uh, the Zoom, uh, Zoom uh, sessions you have with current students or future students, uh, the faculty that might be involved in, in part of your, the content that you're de de delivering. So the live event is great, but don't let, it end, don't let that content just live on that, for that live event. Make content available on demand. Uh, when I want to go look at old Mandalorian episodes, old, it's only been two seasons, but when I want to look at Mandalorian episodes or some of the new ep new series that Disney Plus has coming out, I, I know when that's happening. I can watch it when it first uh, premieres, but I can also go back and watch it again. And I might not be available at the time that it premieres, but I want to see that content. So it's not just the initial premiere of, of, of content that's important. It's how that content is also repurposed. And this is something I preach uh, all the time to, to university clients, is how you use what you have, not just for a one-shot deal for a live event, but the captured content that you have from a live event, having that edited down to manageable chunks in terms of responses to key answers, in terms of making that available on demand so that students in different parts of the world that weren't perhaps up at the time that you were available to watch it live can access it again, uh, whether that's sending them the links to the recordings, putting those an archive of those on your website. Uh, I know this was something we actually did uh, with uh, Education USA back in the early early teens is we we went with a, a video um, kind of warehouse provider Brightco was uh, was the platform that we used as as a way to store our video content and make it available for prospective students at all times. Uh, so we we were doing that pretty early on in Ed, Ed USA in terms of that that having that digital content available uh, whenever students wanted to access it. Uh, and that's uh, that was YouTube our sessions that we had done, videos that we had created, student interviews we had done, we uploaded uh, onto YouTube, but we also made them available through other platforms on on the Education USA site and other other resources. So that had 
long-term value for us and where we could track engagements and views of that content after the fact, not just at, on a, at a live event. So I think there's a lot of value here in this thought, and I, I certainly want to give kudos to the to the author Jay Murray for kind of consolidating what I've been I've been thinking and talking about for a number of uh, months, if not years, uh, with with clients is trying to put together that one-stop shop for your content where it can be a hub for all that you want to do. I know uh, my colleagues over at IDP Connect uh, through their hot courses platforms, they've had their content hub for three or four years now. That's been a kind of a, a central place where la uh, foreign language content is, where uh, student video is, where uh, all the relevant pieces of the admissions uh, puzzle that students need to know, costs, scholarships, admissions criteria, student reviews, that kind of thing can all be consolidated in one place. So that idea certainly has, has been around for a while, but I think now is the time when I think the, having such a hyper-focus on virtual recruitment this year, it's really um, crystallizing a lot of people's minds the need to have this kind of 24-7 access platform, website, content hub, whatever you want to call it, available for your future students. So great uh, topic to start this with, and I know we'll, we'll certainly come back to this as we, as we talk more about future recruitment efforts uh, that different organizations are trying, uh, certainly ones that I'm uh, going to be piloting with a few, uh, at least two or three organizations I'm working with currently. Now let's shift gears now and talk to, talk about a, a, a very sticky topic uh, for uh, U.S. higher education, and that is uh, what's the imp the impact is of anti-Asian sentiment in the United States on future students. Uh, we all will have stories of what, what our current campuses, our current communities are doing in terms of addressing these issues, uh, forums that you've had on campus virtually or, or in person, uh, but talking about uh, what is happening on your campus and how it's being, how the situations are being addressed. Uh, and does it have an impact? Sure, it'll have an impact. It's potentially an, uh, another reason why uh, the U.S. might be seen as a less uh, welcoming place for, in some people's eyes and in many people's eyes. Uh, those that uh, aren't here living it and experiencing it, uh, when they hear things that f the fear is uh, usually the first thing that comes up. Uh, and in parents' eyes, that's, that's a huge concern. So, uh, particularly as it relates to anti-Asian sentiment, uh, this is obviously for where Asia is where 70% of our international students that come to the United States are from. Uh, so it's not just China, it's Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, most of South and East Asia, Philippines. Uh, so you, you get this even, even for Indian students, that uh, you have some of this, but this is mostly uh, in terms of anti-Asian sentiment focused on East Asia. And that's unfortunately been feelings that have been stoked over the last four years with the previous administration's rhetoric uh, that has resonated with a certain percentage, hopefully small percentage, of the U.S. population that just uh, doesn't like things that are, are, are not, not from here. Uh, and that, uh, that otherness is what uh, that fear, <laughs> external fear of the unknown, and really, even though many of the, the, uh, the targets of these, uh, the, the, the incidents of hate and racism that have occurred uh, towards the Asian community in the United States are directed at families and, uh, and individuals that might have uh, been born and raised in the United States and parents one generation or two generations back might have emigrated to the U.S. from, from Asia. But I think... Uh, there's two pieces to this that I want to address today, and two articles in particular. Uh, one in the Pi News uh, that highlights uh, an IIE 
report uh, highlighting key concerns for Chinese students. Uh, and that uh, has to do uh, in terms of what's top of the list for uh, Chinese families as they're looking at the United States as a potential destination. Uh, that um, political tensions and all of that uh, misinformation that's been uh, happening. Uh, that uh, a briefing document that IRE released uh, shares that uh, Chinese student decisions about study abroad, and this is the, this is the quote from, from the IIE document, uh, briefing document, will, uh, their decisions will be primarily affected by concerns for quality, financial considerations, and the impact of the pandemic both at home and in the possible host country, along with any ongoing travel restrictions and limitations to visa services. So that's uh, Peggy Blumenthal, a longtime colleague of mine when I worked at IIE uh, for Education USA, uh, someone who's uh, been a leader in the field uh, for, for decades, uh, certainly one that's very highly regarded. Uh, she, um, she makes the point in, in, of that, uh, our, uh, that future Chinese students coming to the U.S. are going to make their decisions based on those factors, not necessarily the anti-Asian sentiment, uh, but the, the real issues of uh, dealing with the pandemic and ongoing travel restrictions and access to visas. And we've talked about those before and how important that is. Those will be the primary drivers. And that is not just for the United States. That's also where they're looking at other, other destination countries uh, for the UK, for Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And we know for Australia and New Zealand, they're still shut out. Uh, new, new international students have been shut out since February of 2020. Uh, that because they can't physically get to country, get in country to those to Australia and New Zealand, and they are um, have, if they want really want to study there, they had to start online. Uh, there's been a group obviously that started in the fall with U.S. institutions that did start online because they couldn't get in either because of uh, lack of access to visa appointments. So are we going to see a similar series of events this fall that could impact Chinese numbers coming to the U.S.? Uh, it's possible, and a lot will depend on as we've talked about. Uh, on whether U.S. consulates in China open up for visa appointments on and regular routine service, because you figure we've got a backlog. We've got three different groups that we're that we're going to be dealing with for this fall. Uh, we've got the students that did start remote uh, in the fall of 2020 that will expect to be able to come to campus this fall 2021. We've got students that deferred admission in fall of 20 to 21 and maybe took a gap year, did service, did other things in their home country, and then are deciding to, to come for, for good. And then you have a third group, all the new students that have applied in record numbers to a lot of elite schools in the U.S., not all schools, but a lot of elite schools. Uh, we'll share next week all the Ivy League uh, admit rates, which are abysmally low this year. Uh, in terms of what that the impact that being going test optional, that the pent up demand, that uh, the chance to be admitted to a top school when in years past, if you had certain test scores, not being able to take those test scores is actually an advantage this year because you still have strong academics. So we'll see what that looks like. So uh, the, the title, the IIA Network report is uh, a rising or ebbing tide. Do Chinese students still want to study in the U.S.? So they, they, the, I think Peggy's arguments here is that uh, there are still unknowns that are going to drive uh, future uh, interest, uh, many of which will be answered by the fall, uh, some of which uh, we know are going to be key issues, uh, the, the visa availability and vaccines, the double Vs. So those two issues can really 
hamstring us uh, in U.S. institutions in terms of our ability to enroll uh, Chinese students this fall. Uh, but because uh, with the pandemic, uh, I think we've turned our corner. We're, but with the availability of vaccines now in many states to anyone 16 or older, uh, that is going to uh, push us towards that herd immunity that we've all been uh, working towards or hoping for where we can return to whatever a normal looks like. We've seen some states, though against uh, national approval, uh, or federal government approval, uh, going uh, uh, getting rid of their mask uh, mandates. Uh, that those numbers. Uh, there are other states that are also going potentially mask free in the next uh, next uh, week or two. How those will impact it, uh, decisions. Uh, what I think we also need to look at is just on the bigger picture. Um, in addition to this IIE uh, report, uh, those that follow Karen Fisher's uh, newsletter uh, will. Uh, from her from her newsletter Latitudes, uh, that uh, is uh, one of the one of the better uh, resources for, for for news stories and and quick thoughts and hot takes on on her 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 background, particularly with uh, working with uh, Chinese students who have looked at the United States over the years that have come. Uh, there, uh, she she asks the questions is. Uh, related to the anti-Asian sentiments and impacting uh, future student interest. And we, uh, we know that the U.S. hasn't scored high on the safety front uh, for many years, uh, certainly going back to pre-9-11 days. Uh, safety has meant different things at different times in our history, uh, depending on what group you're, you're, you're you're, you're, you might be representing uh, in terms of what the concerns are. Uh, but uh, and what campus you might be on, that uh, it's not a new phenomenon in the United States, anti-Asian racism, uh, and Karen makes that point as well. Uh, but uh, the question she asks is, has uh, wonder is if, if with the pandemic and now these shootings, uh, has that changed how international students perceive racial attitudes and racism towards the United States? Uh, it's it's something that the uh, and she makes the fantastic point and very on point uh, hot take here, and it's not a hot take, it's a pretty common sense thing when you think about it, but uh, Chinese international students, in terms of what knowing what racism is, they're coming from, as she makes the point, they're coming from a, co a country where race is not a salient, she says, a salient social category. They don't have that in their vocabulary. It's an analytical lens of race. Uh, in their home country, it's an eth eth isn't an it isn't China isn't an ethno-racial society as the United States is. So uh, that they don't necessarily interpret it that uh, their experiences as being targets of racism. Uh, knowing what to call uh, when they get looked at funny or they get called certain things, they don't understand it necessarily. They don't identify it as racism. So it's interesting, and and I, I appreciate Karen's takes on this, but. Um, one thing that I, th I think uh, is that are there enough positives to out outweigh this? And I think the the uh, the only way that happens uh, to kind of bridge that divide is for uh, U.S. institutions to to leverage their own current experience, student experiences with this topic and how they've experienced it or not on their campuses and what that looks like and how they've dealt with it. And is it, uh, is it uh, something that, that keeps them up at night or is it just something that they've learned to adapt to? 
the fact that anyone has to adapt to that is an, uh, another question entirely, but painting that picture of how your current students are experiencing whatever it is, is always going to be at the heart of what will convince future students and parents uh, about your campus one way or another. So that, that is a way to at least address these issues with future students if it becomes an issue. And certainly having that content available, uh, as we talked about when that is available, how it is available, how, is it, how it's distributed, are all issues that you want to think carefully through and where that information lives and how it, uh, how it becomes a part of your content plan. Much like uh, we've talked in the past year how important it would be for institutions to really, uh, when, when answering student, prospective student questions, prospective parent questions about what life is like on campus during a pandemic, that's obviously a big concern because yes, by the fall, people will be mostly vaccinated uh, and uh, able to attend in-person classes, but there's still those concerns. How did your university treat your international students and any students really during the pandemic, particularly those that are uh, far from home that uh, haven't been able to get home for because of travel restrictions. So that's that's a that's a legitimate concern of future future students and parents. And and if you're not allowing and making and uh, actually focusing on how your current international students have gone through this pandemic, how they are. Uh, how they have felt um, cared for by uh, their international office, by the university, by the larger community. If that isn't part of a communication plan, that's a missed opportunity. And it, it, it may leave unanswered questions in the mind of your future students and parents' audience, um, in their minds as to whether or not you do really say, mean what you say uh, in terms of caring for students. Everybody says they do, but are you really? And what's the proof of that? The proof of that is with your current students who can share their experiences. Uh, now, how valuable is that in the overall sc scope of things in terms of um, the messaging that you have, uh, messages of your institution, your university's stories in terms of what better reflects uh, the the uh, putting your money where your mouth is in terms of an institution than the care that you've demonstrated over the last year for your current students. Uh, that will speak volumes and has, can last, and, and that, that will last you in good, serve you in good stead for many months uh, to come with your current students, but also the future students that, have, that see the evidence of that. So making that a part of it, uh, part of your, your, your plan to deal with issues like the pandemic, like anti-Asian sentiment, uh, is in, engaging with your current students, uh, making sure that they feel their voices are heard, uh, and that uh, in, if, in ways to help capture that message and to relay that to future students is an important part of that puzzle. So last piece I want to cover today is a question that has been uh, front and center in my mind uh, for uh, a number of uh, a number of uh, months and if not years in terms of what should or who should a senior international officer be? Uh, and this is something that is is important. Uh, senior SIOs, as we call them, senior international officers. Uh, normally, these folks are going to be. Uh, Folks that regularly are going to AIEA conferences uh, for senior international educators, uh, and or it might be uh, in the uh, leadership group uh, in NAFSA, the Knowledge Community for uh, Leadership in International IEL, International Education Leadership. That are these senior leaders. There's trainings uh, for these folks as they come into the, their positions. Uh, is, is who gets these jobs? 
uh, what do you have to have? And almost always you need to have a doctorate of some sort uh, to, to even have a chance at some of these jobs, it seems. Uh, but what, uh, what, what I've seen, there was an article here uh, in University World News that we'll talk about where it says only experienced international educators need apply. And when you think about it, uh, SIO, uh, a senior leader in, in, that represents a campus's international education efforts, their strategy, their policy, uh, it has to be a fairly high level, uh, high level uh, position at an institution if they're taking international seriously. And then there's two ways to tell. Is your SIO a person that reports directly to the president or to the provost, the two senior leaders at, on your campus? If, if that's their direct report line, then chances are it's, it does have a high priority at, at that institution. Is it a doctor required or someone who has extensive experience in international education? Now, what normally happens at a lot of institutions is it's a faculty member that's or a dean that's led uh, creation of study abroad programs or partnerships, uh, not typically going to be someone who's risen through the ranks of uh, international admissions or student recruitment. You may get an international student services person that rises up to that point, again, you, typically if they have a doctorate, where at institutions where I think it's being uh, international education is taken as a priority. Uh, again, report line, doctoral requir doctorate required typically, and a background in international aid. And I think the, uh, the article makes that point that this is how it should be, an S who an SIO should be, is someone with that concrete experience, but who is a senior leader, who does have, uh, have the ear of the president or provost uh, in terms of decisions that impact the entire campus. Now, there are two extremes I've seen at a lot of institutions that do not have SIOs. There are either uh, large schools that have lived on reputation and haven't seen, and in terms of in, in, incoming international students, they haven't really done more, anything more than an if you build it, they will come approach. They haven't been very active in engagement. Their institutional partnerships are, are, tend to be fairly limited. Uh, that those campuses are the ones that probably who, who might be recognizing the need to have an SIO that, um, uh, maybe see, okay, we need to internationalize. What's, what's an important component of that? First, having a plan, but as part of that plan, if you don't already have one, an SIO should be a part of that plan, is having someone at the senior level that provides that leadership specifically for international in implications and efforts, whether that's inbound international, whether that's uh, outbound uh, study abroad students, whether that's institutional partnerships and what guides those partnerships, research, uh, research uh, fellows and all of these pieces, internationalizing the curriculum. Uh, there's a lot of different components to internationalization, obviously, that may or may not get addressed depending on what the priorities are of an institution. But having that SIO can at least provide that senior level leadership as to what that should look like. And having the access to the, to the leadership and having their ear makes a lot of sense. Now, on the other end of the extreme when it comes to SIOs, I've seen uh, regrettably, uh, institutions that uh, might have good international missions, might have uh, decent study abroad, but have nobody at that, at that top level uh, that should have an SIO but don't. And it usually gets relegated to a faculty member if it, if it is created uh, as just a convenience rather than any kind of structural plan that makes sense if on a long-term basis to fulfill institutional mission. So um, the other flip side of uh, institutions that don't have it that are now 
they're hurting and they're struggling. They've had a lot of layoffs. Um, I've seen one institution, a private institution that I know is financially struggling. Uh, they have uh, put out, uh, I saw a job posting for this institution that was for an international education coordinator that would uh, coordinate both study abroad and international admissions. And this person would be an entry level physician. Uh, that didn't necessarily have to have experience in study abroad or international admissions, but that was that person would be de facto an SIO on that campus by covering both SI, uh, study abroad and uh, and admissions. So I can guarantee you that 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 institution does not have international as a priority uh, if you're making an entry level person responsible for study abroad and international admissions. That's just, that just does not make any sense in the long term. Uh, and that, that's something that I think is, a, is an institution that uh, is clearly not, uh, either not going to be around much longer or not gonna, doesn't really have uh, an understanding of what having, uh, having both study abroad and international admissions in one person's role as a senior leader uh, having the role of a senior leader, but being an entry-level position. So uh, those are the kind of troubling ones that uh, that signal to me that that's an institution uh, that needs a lot of help uh, and needs to probably scrap everything and start over uh, and maybe not in a position to do that because of, of uh, the effects of the pandemic and other things uh, that have gone on, the closing of programs and other things that might uh, ha and have impacted a lot of universities around the country. So that's, those are my thoughts for today on what's happening with uh, international education this past week uh, and thinking a little bit more on future topics uh, for this. Uh, I know I'll be sharing some thoughts on as I develop some, pro some platforms uh, that answer some of these questions that we're talking about here. But uh, it's really a pleasure to come to with to you each week and I really uh, enjoy the opportunity to share my thoughts on international ed topics and hope that you find some nuggets in here that are of value to you in your work. So until next time, I wish you the very best and have a wonderful day. Cheers.